0: Well, good morning. This sermon is one of those new heavenly perspectives that that video talks about. This is one of those where we're going to try to gain a new perspective on how to live, how to pray, rather than here's five steps of what to do. But as we, as we turn our attention to the final eight verses of chapter three, we'll find ourselves at the halfway point of our study in this letter to the church of Ephesus. We'll be using our Bibles this morning, so make sure that you have those out as we lean into and lean on the Scriptures. And if you came this morning without a copy of your own, we have some. Our hosts have those for you available. You may borrow it for this morning, or if you don't have one of your own, take it with you and keep it and read it. Just catch their eye as they come down the aisles. I think they have worship programs as well if you need one of those. But in our first three chapters thus far, we have been enriched with incredible spiritual blessings that belong to those in Christ. We have had our spiritual glasses cleansed, cleaned, shined so that we can have eyes to see the hope to which we've been called. We've walked in the depths of our sin, depths that have shown us our deadness apart from Christ, but gloriously contrasted to the aliveness that are given to us, that's given to us only through the grace and mercy of God. That even while we were dead, not mostly dead, but dead, dead, in our transgressions, we were made alive. Oh, and then we've been shown the mystery of this new third race that was made from the two, where the Jews and the Gentiles did not have to be grafted into one another, but instead were made into a brand new glorious mystery, the church. That's us. That includes us. And where Christ put to death our sins and raised us to life, he also put to death the hostility that separated people to raise up a new people to show off his glory. Earlier in chapter 3, in verses 10 and 11, he shares his intent. And Paul says that his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. He did this intentionally, with purpose. And then Paul pauses to pray. In the first three chapters, we see in vivid detail who we are and whose we are. We see what we were and what we have been given. And this prayer is the glue that joins the first half of Ephesians to the second half of Ephesians. And this is the glue that calls on the power of God that gives us strength, not our own strength, his strength, strength from the Spirit to make living the Christian life possible and yet even a joy. It's a transition. This passage is a transition from what to what now? From who we are to how to live. The application of today's message is this, that knowing the unknowable in Christ empowers the unimaginable. Knowing the unknowable in Christ Empowers the unimaginable, but it's the kind of application you might find yourself a little disappointed in, because it's not three steps to gain power. It's not a to-do list that you can walk out on the door and start checking off the list and get it all figured out. There's application to come for sure, but for for today, we need to just stop and stand in awe of who He is and what He offers us and what we have together. Because in the next several weeks, the second half of Ephesians gets practical in a kind of in-your-face kind of way. But it's an overflow of the power and fullness that we can be strengthened and filled with. So as we get those to-do lists, as we get those, here's how to live things, this is the power that Paul prays for us so that that can be accomplished and lived out in our lives. My prayer has been just this, that this morning and in the days to come, we will breathe in deeply the love of God that we will drink from this powerful fire hose, that we'll be blown away by the force of his love for us, and that our hearts will be stirred to recognize what's missing. New desires will be discovered. First love affections will be rekindled. And we'll shake our heads in gratitude and in hope, resting in the fullness of God. So as we read these verses from Ephesians chapter 3, would you stand with me in honor of the word of God? So we read this together. Verses 14 through 21. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So the very first thing that we must address in this is the motivation for Paul's prayer. He says, For this reason. For what reason? You may recall at the beginning of chapter three, he began in just that same way, where he says, For this reason I, Paul. It begins the very same way, and then it appears that Paul takes this detour, this very important detour, rabbit trail, if you will, um, before getting back to this prayer. So he has this reason for this reason, and it's kind of a collective reason or reasons presented in the first half of this letter for these reasons. And so I want to list out a few of the reasons from earlier in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10 says to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In unity. He wants to bring unity together under Christ. In chapter 2 he explains how we are reconciled to God and how we are reconciled through Christ to each other in amazing ways. In in verse twenty two of chapter two, he says, "And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. We are a dwelling where Christ, where God lives by His Spirit. We are united in Christ. We are reconciled through Christ, and we are being built together as a dwelling for God. For these reasons, he prays. But then, right before he kneels to pray to the Father, Paul says." I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. He's basically saying, stand in amazement at the wonder of this revealed mystery, but don't be discouraged because of my sufferings. They serve a greater purpose. In Philippians, Paul says that his chains actually serve to advance the gospel. He was afraid that the Philippians would think, whoa, this is discouraging. What are we going to do now? Paul's in chains. And he says, no, this actually has served to advance the gospel, to move it forward, be encouraged. Paul knew that sufferings were not setbacks. And we can rest in that, that sufferings are not setbacks. We find ourselves in this place often. We want to feel and experience the wonder of God's love. But life is hard This summer I had the opportunity to hear Ann Byler speak. She's the founder of Auntie Ann's Pretzels. And she shared her testimony and she shared it in this way. She said, I believed that life is good and God is harsh. But through trials and, and God's faithfulness through them, she learned that God is good or that life is hard and God is good. It's in suffering that we need power power through the triune God, to have power through the church, to know God's love in all its fullness. It's in suffering that we need power. Just in the last few weeks, we've heard about and we've seen suffering Many opportunities. In fact, we could take any probably week or any group of three weeks or something, and we would have plenty of places to look and see in news headlines and, and life situations where suffering is present, where we can see that happening. But I want to highlight just a couple things. Um, just this week, we got an email from Chad in the in Africa, and many of our brothers and sisters in Chad have experienced some suffering a very specific suffering at the hands of Muslim herders who burned their villages. They came in because they wanted to chase the people away, take over their village because they wanted their land in order to have their own herds. And so they went ahead and just burned down their villages. Many of these people are part of our Keras Alliance of Churches in Africa. These are brothers and sisters, and they sent this video that I want to show you. It's just a minute long, but so that you can kind of get a taste for it, a view of what's happening and what has happened just this week in Chad. Watch this. Voilà les cases qui ont été brûlées par les, par les enseignants. Là. Et voilà, le commissaire BSC disait qu'il n'y a rien dans le village, alors que les cases ont été brûlées un peu partout. Vous voyez la fumée Il y a centaines de cases qui ont été brûlées là. Voilà. Et là, nous sommes actuellement dans le village bébolo Voilà les cases qui ont, qui ont été brûlées. Et il semble que dans le village, il n'y a, a personne, tout le monde a pris fil Voilà. Voilà, c'est ça. Imagine. Can you imagine going home to your neighborhood and this being the reality? What you find yourself walking through? Your livelihood, family members, your, your crops, your, your grocery store doesn't exist anymore, so now there's no place for food. Like, suffering is real and has the potential to discourage. And not only did they just, like, burn down physical things, like, they actually, 35 individuals were killed. 75 others had, have, have injuries and are wounded this is real. Suffering is real. This wasn't ages ago. This wasn't in another era. This is happening right now. Paul says, Don't be discouraged by my suffering. Many of us have friends, family. We have Grace Pillar's church friends that have moved who live in Florida. And we know just this week on the Gulf Coast, they've had their lives turned upside down by the hurricane. And they need power together with us to not be discouraged. And when the circumstances of their lives are churning and the material securities are swept away, there's a power that comes from the Spirit in our inner being. In fact, we have many Karis Fellowship churches that are along the Gulf Coast that are are gathering this morning that are probably assessing what needs to be done and who they need to help, and they're looking at this suffering. They're looking at these needs, but they also have new opportunities where they can walk forward. All of us have trials that we're walking through right now that have the potential to take our affections off of Jesus, our minds off of the glories of God through the church and cause discouragement that makes us feel weak rather than powerful. We're walking through sicknesses, ones that may even end in death. We have walked through the valley of the shadow of death. We have struggled to care for loved ones and find ourselves at the end of our abilities. We've messed up at work. Maybe we've failed tests. We've been mocked and ridiculed. Maybe you felt a sickness in the pit of your stomach over just the godless culture we live in as you look around. I couldn't imagine walking through any of these things without a church family. I couldn't imagine without the family that God has given us to say, I don't need that. I can do it by by myself. We don't celebrate suffering, but in view of the greater purpose He has for us, we don't despair. And so when we get to a point like this in life and we don't know how to pray, open Ephesians chapter three, verses 14 to 21. When our words fail us or we get stuck in a rut of praying, of small and temporal prayers, I'm guilty. I pray some, I have some routine, habitual prayers, ones that aren't necessarily good, just simple things that I say over and over at bedtime or mealtime and I get in those ruts. When we get in those ruts, Open the scriptures to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. And then with Paul, kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, you are invited to pray great and bold and massive and glorious and unimaginable prayers for things that God has blessed us according to his glorious riches. The NIV says that Paul prays out of his glorious riches, But this is not a from his riches or off the top of his riches kind of appeal. This is an appeal to the Father according to his riches. Now let me explain it in this way. There is a big difference in receiving a gift from the riches of Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. That would be a great gift, but there's a big difference from receiving a gift from their riches or receiving a gift according to their riches, Your expectations would be really high if you knew that you were getting a gift. Maybe it would be a new car or a porch full of Prime packages. Maybe you get those anyway. Um, And they're not a gift. You're paying for them. But your expectations would soar if you knew that your gift was coming according to their riches. You'd expect a gift more proportional to their wealth, even more if you were adopted into their family or had a promised inheritance how much more does Paul appeal on behalf of the riches of God the Father from whom his family derives its name and from whom is building among us together his earthly place of residence? We are given permission. We are urged and invited to pray big prayers. Paul doesn't pray that, the, that God would bless the Ephesian church with good leadership, though that'd be good. And I pray that we're praying those prayers he doesn't pray that they would avoid suffering, though that would be wonderful if we could avoid suffering, although we'd miss out on a lot of growth for sure. He doesn't pray that they'll have a good weekend cookout or safe travels. He prays for power, that they would be empowered through the triune God. You see this this triune God, the Trinity, all throughout Paul's letters. And though the the Trinity can be confusing at times and not fully understood, it's not this foreign doctrine that is left to seminarians to debate. It's an extremely practical doctrine as we see it worked out and flowing through Paul's prayers. See, Paul appeals to the Father. This is who we pray to. And he prays in the name of Jesus. He is our access. And he prays through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. This is Christianity in a sentence. We come to the Father through the Son by the help of the Holy Spirit. Did you catch that? Christianity in a sentence. We come to the Father through the Son by the help of the Holy Spirit. This first request is that we be strengthened with power in our inner being. How does that happen? It happens through his Spirit. But why? What is the outcome of that? So that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Wait, we already have this. We have the Spirit. Chapter 1 told us that. We we have Jesus. We were told that in chapter 1. We know that we've been adopted to sonship through Jesus Christ. We know that we have been marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. But this is more than possession and position. This is about power and priority. This is to give you power in your desires, to elevate your affections and replace lesser desires. Marriage is a picture of this. Many of us know this from experience, and we've observed it in others. Affections are stirred for one another, and then soon, lesser desires fade away. The things you once thought so important are now redirected to a person in your affections as they are raised for another. But we know by experience that it takes work then to rid ourselves of selfishness. It takes prayer. It takes remembering our first love. It takes continued intimacy. Because over time, your affections will fade without intimacy. And that's why dwelling is such a key word that Paul uses here in relation to Christ. Think of it this way. We've all had guests in our home, or we've been that guest. You take a tour of the house where you're staying, and your host says, here's the fridge, help yourself. Here's your room, take a nap if you want. Here's the living room, here's the TV remote. And here's the phrase, make yourself at home. We've had people say that to us. We've said that to other people. But have we meant it? Do they take us really up on it? Do you expect that when we get home after work and the garage door comes up that their car is going to be parked in our garage, in our spot? You said make yourself at home. Isn't that part of it? Part of being a home? Would you expect that they would eat all of your snacks? Like, not the ones that you pulled out to the front hoping that they would eat, but like they dug deep and found the stash And now they're sitting on the couch, watching TV, eating all your snacks, and who knows, maybe he even has a shirt off because that's making yourself at home. That's getting comfortable. Maybe they've unpacked their bags into your dresser and told your clothes out because they've made themselves at home. A guest is offered to make themselves at home but expected to live out of their suitcase because they're a guest. They're not staying. But here's maybe a much better scenario. And probably would never happen. But maybe you'd find your guest folding your laundry. That might be awkward, but it might be wonderful if you left it in the dryer over time. Maybe that's a guest you want to stay. But maybe, even more, would you ever expect that they would discover the broken faucet in your shower and then replace it? Or then throw out your old stained couch and buy you an amazing brand new one? Or take down a wall and open up your floor plan? because they thought this would be better and you would appreciate that. We wouldn't expect that of a guest. It might be good. It might be helpful. Maybe it's something we planned to do and didn't get to. But when we buy a home, we do these things. We move into a house and we replace the wallpaper and we tear that down or we paint multiple times until we get it the way we want it. And then we get bored with it and do it again. Um, And then we have all kinds of things we do in our homes to make it our home. We move in. We dwell there. We make it our dwelling because we plan to dwell there. Now a much more uncomfortable scenario. Here's what Paul is saying. You have Christ. Now let him dwell. Let him dwell there. Let him renovate your heart. Let him come in and replace the broken things. Let him move in and stay. Let him have access to your bills and expenses. Let him see your search history. Let him monitor your screen time. Let him empty his bags. In fact, give him the house. He'll manage it much better than we could ever manage it. Transfer ownership to him. Because he'll do this according to his riches. According to his riches, Paul prays that our inner being will be strengthened with power. To let Christ renovate our hearts and be at home in us. We need power in our inmost being. But it doesn't come from within. It comes from the Spirit. It comes from one another. And another another prayer that Paul has for us is that we would be empowered together through the church. That we'd have power together with all the saints, with the holy people, realized in relationship to one another. Now, how is this done? By being rooted and established in love. That is an agricultural example of being rooted deeply. You know how roots spread and how they give strength. And being grounded or established, that's a construction metaphor for having a great foundation that is firm and solid. Why? So that we can grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. We think we can get better at loving all by ourselves or by just trying harder. That's a work of the Spirit in which God uses His people, brothers and sisters, the church, to refine and empower us How do you get rooted in love? By the Spirit's power. Loving is hard. It's difficult. Loving each other is hard. If you don't think it's hard to love people, then you probably haven't loved people. Or you haven't loved difficult people. Or you've only loved the people you like and the people that you agree with and that agree with you. Try being disagreed with. Try being taken advantage of. Try suffering. That's where loving is hard. We need each other to experience this power. The synergy of togetherness is a supernatural power where the outcome is greater than the individual parts. And it's a mystery when we come together that God gives us power through the church. The power that we get comes from being rooted and grounded in love, a love that doesn't waver, a love that isn't blown and tossed, a love that doesn't change with circumstances, but rather finds its strength when challenged. It's together that we most clearly see Paul's mystery made known. And it's together that we can grasp what is unmeasurable. See, he wants us to grab hold of his love, to grasp it. It's it's the kind of grip that I use on my keys when I'm walking in a parking lot over a storm drain. I've been there, I pull my keys out or I'm walking in and I look down and I'm like, oh, I got to get tighter on these. Because if I drop those keys down that storm drain, that's the worst. That's the kind of grip, that's the kind of grasp that we need to make sure that they don't go anywhere, that they don't fall out of our hands. It's not a time to toss it in the air. It's not a time to twirl it on our finger. It's a time to hold on tightly. That kind of grasp so that we can hold how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. So I want to walk through these four dimensions or measurements of God's love. First, his wide love. Because Paul gives us clues all throughout the first half of Ephesians. And even I want to go to Romans briefly. But he says, this wide love from Ephesians 2. That he came and preached peace to you who are far away. And peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. You see, there is no one not a single person who is beyond the reach of God, that is beyond the reach of God's love. There is nothing from your past that makes you acceptable, unacceptable to him. It is a wide love available to all. For God so loved the world. His love is wide. His love is long. His love is long. Ephesians 1 verses 4 and 5 say that he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. You can't outrun his love. It was settled even before the creation of the world. It is long. It reaches deep into the past, and it reaches long into the future. You can't outrun his love, and Romans 8 makes that so clear. As Paul says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. His love is long. It is wide. It is also high. His love is high. Ephesians 2 says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. He lifted us up from the lowest of depths to the highest of heights. His love is high and his love is deep. Ephesians 1 verses 7 and 8 say that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. His love is so deep, so deep that he lavished his riches on us. His blood for our forgiveness. That even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, this is a love that, that loves us and knows us completely. And, and that's a really scary place to be. To be known fully. To be fully known. That is a scary place to be. But it's also a love that loves us completely. And that's peace to be fully known and yet fully loved. We have that in Christ. If you are part of Christ's own body, your sins evoke his deepest heart, his compassion and pity. He takes part with you. That is, he's on your side. He sides with you against your sin, not against you because of your sin. And and Dane Ortlund in his masterful book where this quote came from, Gentle and Lowly, he goes on to describe the kind of love a father has for his sick and diseased child. A father's love is drawn out all the more when disease attacks. Yes, he loves his son, but when your child is under attack, your affections are not turned away from your child in that moment, but rather strengthened with a deeper, higher, longer, wider love. Paul longs for us to grasp this, and it's, most, and it's done most fully together as we walk with the saints, with our church, with our family, the people of Jesus, the body of Christ with skin on, to be experienced. And finally, Paul prays that we would be empowered to know his surpassing love. Empowered to know his surpassing love. Now, this is not a love that cannot be known and this is not a love without knowledge. This is a love that surpasses knowledge. This might be the engine that drives our prayers or maybe explains our lack of praying. Because somewhere inside of us, we have believed that right information is enough and will lead us to right behavior and right actions. Right information is great and it's important but it's, there's more to it than just right information and knowledge. Because somewhere inside of us, we believe that right information leads us to living rightly. We know so many right things that we don't seem to be able to do. We know so many right things that we're not even, that we can't do. We need a love that surpasses knowledge. We need a power that comes from the Spirit together with the saints, with the church with one another in this room. Paul is praying that the church in Ephesus will live out more than where the, their knowledge can alone take them. It's more than where the knowledge can take them all by itself. That they would live out their identity as the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Colossians 119 says it this way. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That's in Jesus. God was pleased to have all of his fullness, all of the fullness of God live in Jesus. In the Gospels, when they encountered Jesus, he would correct people and say, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. All of the fullness of the Father lives in Jesus. And then here's what he's saying, that may we, together with the church, Grace Polaris Church, may we grasp that Will we grasp that love and be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God? According to Colossians, the fullness of God is in Christ. And in this chapter, and in chapter 1 of Ephesians, he says that his church, that his body is the fullness of him. So he wants us, he wants us to be filled to the fullness of God. That's like the mind-blowing emoji moment right there. We're like, what in the world? Like, this is crazy. How can we know the unknowable and measure the unmeasurable? We experience it. We walk in it. And this can only happen through the Spirit deep in our inner being together with the church. My heart breaks for those who claim Christianity but consistently forsake meeting together. My heart breaks for them. My heart breaks for those who think that me, myself, my Jesus, and my Bible is all I ever need. That's enough. No, there is a mystery to this we, to this gathering together to the church that's glorious and part of the riches that God wants to give us. Power is found together with the church. Many can know the love of Christ, but not a love that surpasses knowledge without experiencing togetherness. It's the togetherness that makes us rich. I have the privilege of having a front row seat to seeing teenagers' lives being transformed by the gospel. And some examples from this summer rise to the top. As we were at our middle school camp this summer and then Momentum Youth Conference, students actually were putting their faith in Jesus, some for the first time, some returning after wandering away. And their response to the word of God was clear in the decisions that they were making. And the gospel had its effect as the spirit drew them to God. But the celebration that ensued when students came to Jesus, came back to Jesus, is a taste of the fullness of God together with the church. See, when they shared with us what God was doing in their hearts and what he was leading them to and drawing them to, and what God was doing in them, it was a taste of heaven. It was so good. The hugs, the cheers, the chants of agape love, the prayers, the joy in these snapshots were not without knowledge. But the love that was experienced was beyond knowledge. It surpassed that. These are moments that'll be remembered. These are moments that'll be remembered forever and then then looked back on when struggles come, when challenges come. In another way, this is what baptism is designed to do. It merges our knowledge our obedience, our commitment in faith to Jesus with the family of God so that together with the church in celebration, we can grasp his love in a way that surpasses knowledge. Communion is another one of these power-filling stations that we get to experience together where we gather with the Lord's holy people to remember, to express gratitude, to model repentance, to look forward, to celebrate Jesus together. If love only stops at knowledge that we can measure, we become the older brother who had no category in his knowledge for a brother who came home after squandering all of the riches of his father only to get a party and to be given all the blessings that he once rejected. He had no category with only knowledge but the father lavishes his love on us. And when we know the unknowable in Christ, it empowers us. It empowers the unimaginable and it overflows in doxology as it does for Paul. I want to read Ephesians three twenty and 21 again, the end of this passage, his doxology as he wraps up his prayer request, as he begins to say, God, I don't understand this and you're going to do even more. It says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. If there is a takeaway, if there's an application beyond standing with your jaw on the floor in amazement of the power that he wants for you, for us, it's that we have a new example of how to pray and what to pray. Well, we pray small prayers and maybe that's why too often we get small answers. We pray for good health. We pray for safety. We pray for recall of our studies so that we get good grades. We pray for a promotion at work. We pray for a good night's sleep. And these are not insignificant prayers, but they're small. They're smaller than what God wants for us and for what God wants for us to experience in him. We want success for you. We want that promotion. We want good grades. We want all these things if you'll use them to bring God glory. But we often pray about our circumstances here on earth when we should be begging For the eternal purposes of God to change us. He promises us that if we seek first his kingdom, all these things will be added as well. Friends, he offers power through the Spirit. He offers fullness in Christ. And if we can imagine that, he offers even more.